Well, uh, welcome back. Speaking of refugees, can I play you a few seconds of something I came across last night? Um, because you know the current uh, thinking from the government on refugees of one thing and another. Here's an example of the way politicians sort of do U-turns and stuff. This is from 1999 and it features Michal Martin. And these are his thoughts on refugees at that point. I would have to say that there are an increasing number of people who are casually banding around the word racist. This does nothing to foster an informed and balanced discussion of the issues. We should also have no place in our debates for the naive extremes of those who think we can have completely open borders and manage any number of refugees and those who would exclude all non-EU immigration. The naive extremes um, that we can take in unlimited numbers. That's, that's very interesting, do you not think, from 1999. Anyway, delighted now to have Thomas Conway with me in studio to talk about global politics. Good morning to you, Thomas. Good morning to you, Frank. Oh, yeah, that's a great example of the way politicians do U-turns. Well, they uh, change on, and on, evolve, don't, don't they? Don't they, indeed. Speaking of changing and evolving, I suppose it's fair to say that Gaza has pushed uh, Ukraine off the front pages, but in recent times, uh, Putin has spoken to his public. Yeah, he's done this end-of-the-year press conference. A very interesting thing he does every year. He convenes a lot of journalists and even members of civil society in kind of a in a press room and does this long rolling, it can go up to about four hours in length, uh, in which he drones on about Russia's uh, priorities and ambitions and everything that it's got up to throughout the year. So he did this last year and I was following it and... My God, the man can speak, he can speak, he can really go on and on and on. I was Obviously, I was listening to a translator, but I mean, uh, mm. he, he has phenomenal length and breadth to his answers. He has an answer for everything. How does it work? I mean, is it a kind of a phone-in situation as well? Is there, there, there is kind of, you, you have people phoning in as well, so yeah. it's kind of, it's an act of participation. Anyone, anyone seemingly can ask the question, now we... No, I, I note that with scepticism because, you know, it's the yes. Kremlin. It's probably highly choreographed yeah. in reality. Uh, but Putin gave a very... Uh, I'm not sure what to make of his assessment of the war in Ukraine. He kind of conceded in certain respects that Russia hadn't maybe achieved the full breadth of its objectives. Mm. Uh, in I, certain... I found that interesting, um, that that admission was there. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think it's... It, it, speaks to reality because I think there is a growing sentiment within the Russian populace now that thinks that this war isn't going to plan, that they're getting frustrated, that uh, you have soldiers out on the front line, out there dying, uh, and that it's turning into a disastrous invasion. Now, Putin isn't going to admit that, but when you look at the facts, when we look at it placed out there, I mean... Russia annexed four territories uh, in December 2022. Uh, this time, 12 year or last year, they still haven't got full control of their those territories. They're still struggling to uh, to resist Ukraine in certain areas. The Ukrainian counteroffensive hasn't really played out to the extent that it should. It's been a I don't want to say it's been a failure. It hasn't been a complete failure, but it certainly hasn't been a success. Mm. Mm. So on both sides, you get the sense that both sides are kind of... It's a stalemate. They're stalemate. Yeah. It is ground out to a stalemate. Yeah. Both sides are kind of stuck in the mud, are kind of unsure of where they're going and unsure of where mm. this conflict is going. But everything I sense from Vladimir Putin is that he's in this for the long game, yeah, for a and, long and war. And his talk of sovereignty was was kind of interesting because this encompasses, I suppose, his decision to invade, really. Yeah, you know? precisely. Precisely, because his vision of Russian sovereignty encompasses Ukraine. 
uh, and he he sees Ukraine as part of the the Russian Empire, mm. if you want to call it that. Uh, he sees it as a as a territory that he, they should be controlling, and it, it's it's curious. Sometimes I wonder. Does he actually believe in this denazification process? Does he really believe that this is the case in Ukraine or is it just something to... That, that he's fighting fascism. In that some he's ways, fighting that he, fascism. Yeah, yeah. You wonder sometimes, you really just wonder. And, and I find it, in, he's an intriguing character anyway because, I mean, he's a, he was seen as a master strategist prior yeah. to, this, to this Ukraine invasion. And the Ukraine invasion went so terribly wrong on Russia that at that that reputation was kind of shattered uh, but he is still very cunning and he is still very wily and he is in this for the long game I think How many soldiers have died? Have we have we figures on that? I, I can't the figures I have them here somewhere Yeah, but I mean we're it's up a, into the 315,000 according to US intelligence yeah. yeah so we're up into the we're up into the hundreds of thousands I mean it's an unacceptable figure any other country in the world I think would be seriously questioning their leader were there were you to have that level of of death in your in your military uh Putin hasn't has gone unchallenged. I note that he has silenced Alexei Navalny, who is yes. the uh, anti-Kremlin activist who is currently in prison in Siberia. He has gone missing at the moment, at this present moment in time. We had earlier in the year, we had the drama of the Evgeny Prigozhin and the Wagner mercenary group and his untimely death. Uh, we had that drama unfold and that was obviously... Putin's doing as well. So we had a lot of different events this year. What about the sanctions against uh, Russia? How effective are they? You really have to question them at Would this you? stage. I mean, it, it, Russia, Russia has built itself a war economy. It has fortified its economy uh, to defend it against, against the kind of sanctions that the West is trying to impose. And I think it's done a reasonably good job of that. I think uh, for the moment, the Russian economy remains resilient yes. uh, in the face of what are supposed to be crippling sanctions. I wonder, can the West do more? I wonder, can we impose more punitive sanctions on oligarchs and the kind of the oligarch monopoly that is in charge of Russian society? Because I think, I think some people have got away lightly in that regard. It's the same with Putin himself. Personal sanctions... He's under the sanction of the International Criminal Court, which means he can't travel to a lot of different countries uh, for which that has jurisdiction. Um, it is possible that further sanctions could be placed on Putin himself yes. and his family members. So there are numerous ways of going about it. I suppose. I'm not sure if you saw, there was one particular clip where he was kind of telling a joke. But the joke was on Germany because the point of the joke, I can't remember the detail of the joke now, but the point was that the sanctions are more destructive to Germany and to the economy in Germany and to the cost of living in Germany than it is in Russia. Yeah, which is and that is precisely yeah. the thing. And that is what I say. Russia has built a war economy. It has ensured its economy remains resilient against these forces. And it looks at Europe, it looks at Europe with disdain, obviously, but the Europeans, in certain European countries, there is still that dependence there on Russian oil and gas. We're trying to wean ourselves off it steadily and slowly and surely, and, and we will in gradual, in time. But historical mistakes were made. I have to call out Angela Merkel. I have to call out her decision to uh, to continue... Uh, independence. The, yeah, the yeah. independence uh, or to 
not to shy away from yes. becoming independent energy, independent from Russia. I have to point her out, even though I'm a big admirer of Angela Merkel, but certain mistakes were made. Certain mistakes were made by various European countries. We now have a, a cohort of countries on the front line that border Russia, effectively, mm. uh, who are on the verge of joining NATO. We have new NATO member states. Will Ukraine become a member of NATO? Will Ukraine become a member of the EU? As as we found out last week, the mm. the opening well, not of, not if Hungary has its way, not if <laughs> Victor Orban has yes. his way, and he seems yeah. to be a staunch defender. Now he walked out of the room last week, as people will be aware. He allowed accession negotiations was that to start. An abstention, really. Was it, it was an that, abstention, and yeah. it was choreographed. Yeah. I believe. I believe Emmanuel Macron came out and indicated that it was a choreographed move that. He had indicated beforehand that this is what he was going to do. Mm. He subsequently, however, blocked 50 billion in Ukraine, in aid to Ukraine. So, I mean, he certainly is stalling the process to mm. some degree there. Uh, and and just where Zelensky is concerned, I mean, you know, like his reception in America this time round, for example, big difference there. Um, very different. Are, are we tiring of of this? There thing? is uh, the question is: Are Ukrainian citizens tiring of him? And there is. Increasing calls now. There is increasing rumours that an election may be held. Now, I can't see how they'll hold an election in, in, a, war in a wartime situation. But you have the top military commander, General Valery Zeluzny, who is seen as a potential successor to Zelensky. I think Zelensky's term ends in, in 2027 or so, so he still has a bit to go. But there are questions being asked now of his leadership. He's no longer the the ironclad figure that he was yeah. a year ago, the, the Time Person magazine of the year, or Time Time magazine yes. person of the year. Uh, he's in a different space now, and he's finding it difficult, I think, to retain that same degree of popularity. It's going to be very interesting to see what, what uh, happens there, because, of course, without money and without the support from America, particularly, I suppose... Um, You'd wonder where, where it's going to end. Wouldn't You'd you? wonder where it's going to end. And I mean, yeah. if this is going to be a long attritional war, Ukraine is going to mm. need sustained financial support, not only to support its military, but to keep its economy afloat. Of course, yes. I yeah. mean, just to keep the government Is coffers. it the Republicans that's holding this up? It, it is the Republicans, and they've tied it to some controversial issues around the US border with Mexico. Yes. They've kind of tied the two issues in together because they want to get that resolved. Uh, before they'll release money to Ukraine. Before they'll release yeah. money to Ukraine. But it doesn't speak well. It doesn't speak well for America. I think heading into an election year now, we have the prospect of Donald Trump returning to power. We have what prospect might he, what what might he bring to this situation? I mean, he said he'd solve the crisis in a day uh, with, with people around the table, you know, Fat chance of that happening, I think. Fat, fat chance, indeed. We have to look at the EU summit uh, as well. A lot of tension around that, too. A lot of tension there, a lot mm. of tension. And I think increasing calls. We had Leo Varadkar saying, you know, both in respect to Ukraine and the war in Hamas, I think, you know, two major existential crises that are currently unfolding are, are currently uh, happening with within the global sphere. And I think the EU, in some respects, is maybe struggling to come up with solutions to that to that crisis. I think it is kind of equivocated on the Israel-Hamas war. You have certain countries coming out asking for a ceasefire, a complete humanitarian ceasefire, Ireland being one of them, others taking a more 
moderate view. I think France is, uh, now France is maybe coming out a little stronger in the past few days, mm. but there are very mixed views in it across the spectrum of the EU political leaders uh, and mixed views as to where where this conflict is headed. I think there is no doubt, though. I think Israel is killing too many civilians and I think that would be openly acknowledged by uh, by most EU leaders, by most yes. uh, European and, countries. And even some of the rhetoric from America on this now, God knows, they're still saying that they're they're full square behind uh, Israel, but they're softening to some degree and saying, look, it has to be more targeted. Yeah, America you know. and Biden and Blinken and uh, the Lloyd Austin, the, the US Defence Secretary, is out there mm. in recent days, yeah. really really hammering that point home to Benjamin Netanyahu. But to, to, to my half astonishment Netanyahu is he, he, he seems obstinate he seems oblivious almost uh, he wants to maintain this current uh, this current barrage of conflict he sees it as the only way to defeat Hamas and it may be he may be right in saying that Hamas needs to be completely exterminated and extinguished and they look they probably are using civilian uh, civilian infrastructure to hide themselves. But how would that ever happen because you're not fighting a traditional army no. uh, in, in Hamas so how many people would you have to kill to you know annihilate and, and uh, that is precisely it and as somebody made the point to me the people in Hamas you, you have military you have soldiers but you also have lawyers and doctors yeah. you also have ordinary civilians there ordinary people who are who are members of, uh, or who are members of Gazan society, and who have joined Hamas? Hamas isn't just a a wartime, a fighting machine, or a political ent- entity. It also provides social services yeah. uh, and different mechanisms course, like yes. that. So, well, isn't it interesting that we're from the Palestinian people? There was a lot of doubt about Hamas before this conflict, and now it seems to have more support than ever from Palestinians. Yeah, and so. and in ways you think, how could that happen? But in other ways, you see the the bombardment that the area is is witnessing or is is being halted by uh, uh, by uh, Israeli forces and you think how couldn't they support uh, any opposition to to Israel you know how couldn't they when their children are dying when you have this level of civilian death and civilian casualty all across the country you know it, it's it's impossible for well, it's impossible for us to put ourselves yes. in their shoes, but it really is a dreadful situation. And, and just before we leave the EU, somewhat, I mean, it's important to point out as well that there's not universal support from Europe for Gaza, really. Sure, there's not, because no, there's there still isn't. elements, and we, we saw it with Ursa uh, van der Leyen, um, you know, speaking out on behalf of Israel. And, uh, yeah, you know. and crucially, in the EU, you need unanimity yeah. across the board. So you need mutual agreement across the board for uh, for decisions, concrete decisions that's to be made. And that's why Orban walked out last week. He abstained from the vote and therefore gave gave the leaders the go-ahead. But you're right, there isn't unanimity across the board here. There are very mixed views in this crisis and I think uh, the more mixed they are, the more complicated things get. You have countries there in Eastern Europe, the likes of uh, Poland, uh, Poland, Hungary, who are quite sceptical of of, uh, of the EU's actions in, in Israel. There's also a question of how much of a difference the EU can make here. We've seen the limited difference the UN has made, even in calling for its ceasefires and, and other measures like that. So there's a question to be held for... Uh, there's a question of Ursula von der Leyen now and Charles Michel, the, the European Council president. How much of an influence can they wield over, over Israel? And, and can they... 
can they bring some kind of detente to this current crisis? It'd be very interesting to see. In fairness to Ireland, I mean, right from the very start, yeah. they've thrown the weight behind saying that what's happening in Gaza is, is unacceptable. Yeah, and in fairness to Leo, he, he has, yeah. and he said it last week again, yeah. he has been to the fore and calls for, for a ceasefire. And Micheál Martin. And Micheál Martin, yeah. and Micheál Martin, the, both of them, uh, and, and Eamon Ryan, of course, you know, have have done have done their utmost to to stress or hammer home that point that Israel's Israel's bombardment is unacceptable. So you know, Ireland has played a role here, and hopefully, we can continue to play an active role in this and an active role in resolving this conflict. Now, we ask you uh, every week to have a look at a historical figure. Um, the figure you're looking at this week is sort of vital to our celebrations this coming uh, weekend. Will you tell me about uh, our historical? of course, St. Nicholas of Myra, otherwise known as Santa Claus. Right. So he's obviously, from we know he's up in the North Pole at the moment, he's preparing and it's it's a busy time for him. But he actually has a fascinating history as well. Mm. Stretches all the way back to the year 270 BC when he was born on the 15th of March there. He's traditionally known as St. Nicholas of Myra or St. Nicholas of Barry. He was an early Christian bishop of Greek descent from the maritime city of Myra in in Asia Minor. So that's modern day Turkey. Mm. Uh, and he was responsible during, he lived in the time of the Roman Empire, it should be said. So he lived in uh, when the area was under Roman occupation. Uh, but he was responsible for a number of intercessions or miracles or or call them what you want, which gained him a reputation as a famous uh, caregiver, as, as a man who who gave to civilian population, who gave to civil society. There are famous incidents from his life. He said to have rescued three girls from being forced into prostitution by dropping a sack of gold coins on their window for each of them each night so their father could pay a dowry so he right. could rescue them so from prostitution. that's where prostitute. the notion of gift giving... Gift giving. Yeah. This played a core part, an integral role. Uh, he, became, he became Bishop of Myra. Uh, he was later cast into prison during the... Uh, the persecution of Diocletian, who was a uh, a Roman emperor, but he was released after the the accession of of Constantine, the other Roman emperor. So he was he lived a controversial life. He yes. lived quite a a difficult life in many respects. And we have to remember that life back then was was quite difficult from what it is now. His current role, giving presents, was quite difficult. Was quite different. Uh, he had a very different role. He had a uh, you know there was widespread poverty across society. Uh, he had hmm. to make sure that... Uh, My history is a bit dodgy. Was this the same time as the Crusades? This would have fed into the Crusades through the oh, latter okay. part of his life. And his, yeah, his his uh, remaining bone fragments yeah. were taken by sarcophagus, later removed by Venetian soldiers, taken to Venice as part of the First Crusade. So the Crusades did have an influence towards the end of his life. Right. Uh, he was there at that time. But he continued to, to give alms and to give presence and, and gestures throughout his life. He lived kind of a a really a humble life and it, it, it speaks... And were miracles attributed to him? There perhaps? were miracles attributed to him. Uh, he, uh, he, as I said there, that, that intercession with the three girls mm. was seen as a miracle. Mm. Uh, he, he, there were other, I think, incidents throughout his time in which he was said to have intervened uh, uh, and performed miraculous works. So, you know, he, a lot Incredible of different story, events throughout his lifetime. Uh, a fascinating character. Fascinating, the more I yeah. read up on him, he's worth reading up on. Did he wear uh, a red suit and, and a beard? I'm not sure. He certainly <laughs> does now, anyway, that's for sure. He certainly does now, indeed. All right, we're just about uh, out of time, but if you were to pick one or two uh, things really quickly, what we should be looking out uh, for? I would say keep your eyes on 
uh, the the White House and the coming the, the the events there over this Christmas. Joe Biden heading into an election year, yeah. huge year for him, huge year for the Democratic Party. Uh, you have other figures within the White House. Advisor Jake Sullivan he met with Saudi Prince Pro, or Mohammed bin Salman last week over the Gaza crisis. So uh, lots happening there as well. But certainly right. it's a big time for the White House. The big one is uh, Taiwan, though. I mean that's a very interesting, and we don't yeah. have time to go into it here now. But it was. A reading again over the weekend. I mean, if anything happens where China and Taiwan is concerned, Taiwan is a centre of production where technology is concerned and it could have incredible ramifications on the world. Huge, huge ramifications because semiconductors, uh, microchips essentially, a lot of them come from Taiwan. A lot of them have mm. their origin there and it could have huge ramifications. You're absolutely right. And this is a threat that China is is increasingly posing to, to the island state, to the... Uh, America has promised to defend it, but I mean, it'd be very difficult if you saw if there was another, if there was an invasion on top of the crisis wow. we're already witnessing. An invasion of Taiwan would just be disastrous, not just for them, but for the planet. Thank you for all the wonderful contributions during the year, Thomas, and a happy you, Christmas Fran. to you and your family. It was always, always a pleasure. Thanks very much. Many happy returns. We'll take a, a break. Back in just a moment. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie 